Good morning. Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Welcome to our friends who are connecting us, uh, connecting to us by uh, video conferencing. Uh, and to all of you, we have a special uh, conference today. And because we have uh, four participants, four speakers, who will uh, eventually take uh, a place uh, as a panel for further discussion, I want to keep my remarks uh, of introduction uh, brief. So um, our presenters are uh, united, really, by a significant commitment to international global health. Uh, and uh, we're going to focus on one flower here, a flower growing in Africa predominantly. Uh, Lisa Adams graduated uh, from Dartmouth Medical School and has a long commitment to international health, working with such organizations as the International Rescue Committee, Project Hope, Tuberculosis Control in New York City, AIDS International Education, the Global Health Initiative, the Dardar Pediatric Program, and most recently, rebuilding the health infrastructure in uh, Rwanda as a project director. She's the director of the Center for Health Equity and the Associate Dean for Global Health at our Geisel School of Medicine. Elizabeth Talbot graduated from uh, the Robert Wood Johnson uh, Medical School in 1992, and thereafter her uh, interest and commitment to international health uh, grew uh, exponentially. Um, she's a commissioned uh, officer in the Department of Health and Human Services, having trained as an epidemic intelligent officer uh, focused on international tuberculosis eradication, and has published over 60 peer-reviewed articles, most recently regarding uh, fungal contamination in methylprednisolone injections. And of course, many of you heard her recent uh, uh, discussion of uh, epidemic outbreaks in uh, our own state. Laura Chevy uh, graduated from Stony Brook uh, School of Medicine in 2004. And then um, uh, shortly thereafter, she uh, joined the section of hospital medicine here and became uh, recently a clinical mentor uh, for the, uh, clinical health, the Clinton Health Access Initiative, uh, Human Resources for Health, which we'll hear much more about, and just spent a year in Rwanda as the first of a seven-year uh, effort to uh, rebuild that country's infrastructure. And Bruce Friedman, as uh, uh, a graduate of the New York Medical College in uh, 1976, uh, he came to Dartmouth in, I think, 1983, uh, and uh, a, a fantastic clinical cardiologist, uh, has published many papers throughout his career, and uh, recently became the first uh, cardiologist to uh, work uh, as part of this project in, uh, in Rwanda. None of today's speakers has any financial interests or arrangements in association with this uh, presentation uh, and have no conflicts of interest. So with that uh, brief introduction, uh, it's really a fantastic uh, opportunity to have people from lots of different uh, angles uh, participating together in this uh, great new venture. And I'll turn it over to Lisa. <coughs> Thank you, Jonathan, for introducing all four of us. Can you hear me with the microphone? Great. So I am going to um, just, again, mention that we have no conflict of interest and that all um, patient photos that are shown are done so with their explicit permission. <coughs> I will lead off this group presentation on, uh, and provide an overview on our participation and impact um, in the Rwandan Human Resources for Health program. And I recognize this is somewhat of an unusual presentation for a um, medical grand rounds to have so many uh, speakers, but I really wanted to include the voices and perspectives of my colleagues who have been involved in this program and also to capture the extent of the Department of Medicine's involvement um, in this program. When talking about Rwanda, I like to start out by showing this picture, which is the scene that I passed every day on my way walking from my homing Higali to meet my carpool. And I like this picture because I think it serves as a visual metaphor for the social and economic transition that Rwanda is currently undergoing. When you think about in the foreground there, there's an image representing um, Rwanda's agrarian um, and uh, substance level, level um, farming history. And then in the not too distant horizon, it, you see an image of the uh, city center skyline evoking Rwanda's future as an emerging economic power. Rwanda has one of the fastest growing economies on the continent. And finally, this photo 
reminds us that Rwanda is being built on the backs of women. That was certainly true in the aftermath of the genocide, and it's largely still true today. Before I dive into the details of the Rwandan program, I just wanted to highlight that this program is well aligned with the global health mission at Dartmouth and with Geisel's new Center for Health Equity. When you consider that our vision is a world with health equity for all, our mission is to engage students and faculty in long-lasting and reciprocal partnerships and work together on education, training, research, and clinical practice or service. You will see how this program is helping us achieve that mission. Some basic Rwanda statistics. I put up the map there, but I know everybody is well aware that Rwanda is that tiny little landlocked country um, in East Africa. Rwanda is the same, about the same size as the state of New Hampshire, but is 10 times the population. In 2009, Rwanda went from being francophone to anglophone, which certainly made um, the work of many of the US partners a little bit easier. Its national language is Kenya Rwandan. And I can tell you I put in many valiant efforts to learn some common phrases and greetings. But when the word for ambulance barely fits on one side of the vehicle, <laughs> you know you're in trouble. Despite Rwanda's recent economic growth, it is still one of the poorest countries in the world, ranking at 203rd um, out of 207 countries. Some Rwanda health-related facts and successes, and this really is a success story. Around the years of the genocide, Rwanda had the lowest life expectancy in the world. It was about 27 years at that time. It has since then climbed back up, and now at 63 years, Rwanda's on par with many of her neighboring countries. Rwanda's TB and HIV rates are shown here, and those are about half the rates of um, the neighboring countries to Rwanda. But the real success lies in the indices that are measures that tell us that Rwanda has achieved essentially universal access to antiretroviral therapy for its HIV-infected patients. And if you are diagnosed with um, TB in Rwanda today, you have a 90% chance of being cured. Much of this um, health and public health success has been attributed to the extremely affordable community-based based health insurance called Mutuelle de Santé, which covers more than 95% of the population, and also to its extensive network of community health workers. Despite the successes in, in some of the public health programming, um, Rwanda, like many of her neighbors, is experiencing a healthcare worker shortage, which does result in excess morbidity and mortality for the country. Rwanda has only about 625 physicians, some 8,000 nurses, some 200 midwives, and that places Rwanda well below the WHO recommended ratio of 2.3 healthcare workers per thousand population. Now, the reasons for the global healthcare worker shortage are complex. Migration certainly plays a role. And when I think about why someone would leave their country to practice um, in another country, it turns out that the reasons are very much the same reasons why you or I might choose to leave our country to practice elsewhere. People are driven out by unsafe work conditions or violence in their communities. They're seeking a livable wage. They are seeking a safe um, place to raise their families, where there's decent schools to send their children to. And they're looking for opportunities where there's going to be career advancement and professional development. Maybe it starts to sound like some of the reasons why some of us came to work here in the Upper Valley. Enter the Rwandan Human Resources for Health program. Its aim is to build a high quality and sustainable healthcare system and address some of the challenges of Rwanda's healthcare system, including that critical shortage of physicians and other healthcare workers, the inadequate number of faculty members to train the next generation of healthcare workers, the fact that Rwanda's residency training programs are all still quite new, they're all less than 10 years old, so they're still really in early developmental stages, and the fact that the majority of nurses in Rwanda are undereducated. <coughs> Now, any program as revolutionary as this one must have a local champion. And there is no doubt that this program's local champion is Dr. Agnes Binaguahu, the Rwandan Minister of Health. She's quite a charismatic figure. Anyone who's heard her speak here at Dartmouth um, knows that that is the case. She is brilliant. She is demanding. She is outspoken. She is unapologetic. She is sassy. And she's a professor of pediatrics here at Geisel. 
She also has some other ties to Dartmouth. Um, as you can see, she's a recipient of an honorary degree from the college, and she also has a growing collaboration with um, Al Molly and others at the Dartmouth Center for Healthcare Delivery Science. Dr. Agnes is committed to rebuilding the healthcare workforce in Rwanda, and she wants to do this by setting an example for the rest of the world. So how did Dartmouth get involved in this program? Well, in April 2011, then-President Jim Young Kim received a phone call from the Clinton Foundation's Health Access Initiative, asking if Dartmouth would like to be a partner in this new, bold and ambitious program to help rebuild edu uh, education, medical education in Rwanda. Of course, we were delighted to be one of the first institutions invited to join what has now become a consortium of eight medical schools. Our goal is rebuilding the medical education system, beginning with the preclinical years, but through the spectrum, all the way up to mentoring of junior faculty. In all my years in global health, I have never been involved in a program that is this comprehensive. It includes medical. It includes nursing. It includes dental. It includes health management teams. It includes strengthening the infrastructure of the country. Um, it includes procurement mechanisms to buy the equipment and supplies and materials that healthcare workers need to be able to do their jobs. And it requires a significant commitment. We're recruiting faculty for long stays in country, six months, 12 months. And after seven years, the Rwandan government has done the projections and is saying that they will be able to sustain these human resources gains without additional foreign assistance. This is a picture of the Central University Teaching Hospital in Kigali, where I worked for my six months. Uh, this is a hospital entrance. I just wanted to give you a visual of, of um, the setting where we worked. The um, hospital grounds were comprised of several of those um, single-story stone buildings, each housing a different department or unit. This is a photo of one of our surgeons, Nick Perencevich, who is also here in the audience with us today. Here he is um, operating at the University Hospital side by side with his Rwandan colleagues on a case with an obstructed gallbladder. This is a list of the other schools um, that are involved in the uh, consortium, the medical schools, nursing schools, the public health and health management schools, and schools of dentistry. So you can see we're among very good company. We're working with some of the best universities um, in the country. This is a picture of uh, the medical student case presentation conference. Um, you can see it's uh, jam-packed, and it's, in fact, it's standing room only. And what's amazing is no one ever complained about that. <laughs> so what has been Dartmouth's participation? At the beginning of the program, we committed to send three to four faculty members each year to work in this program with the responsibilities of enhancing the quality of education in Rwanda, improving quality of care, um, strengthening the residency programs, um, building and promoting evidence-based medicine, and promoting a culture of continuous quality improvement. Well, I'm pleased to say that not only have we met our commitments, we have exceeded them. This is a list of all the faculty who have participated in year one and year two of the program. And I'm also very pleased to say that some of the people on this list are, are here in the audience today. Um, as I mentioned, Nick is here and Jack Vanhoff from Pediatrics. And I think I saw Steve Benson here, who's going to be heading out there in the spring, and Luai Kailani, who was there last year with me. So really, you can see that the Department of Medicine is well represented um, in these numbers. And we're in the midst of recruiting for years three and beyond. So if you are interested, please come and talk to me. As you can imagine, to an accomplish an effort of this magnitude, it takes a village. And this is a list of the people in my village. Everybody here has played a critical role in making sure that this program has been successfully and seamlessly um, executed. Um, I could talk for hours about how, uh, the role that everyone has played, but I did want to just mention and, and particularly thank John Butterly for his support and Karen Cribbett and her financial team for making sure everything flowed so smoothly. Perhaps the best way I can convey my thanks is to say, I can't tell you the number of times when I was in Rwanda when I thought to myself, thank goodness I work for Dartmouth. Anytime there was a concern or a question <clears throat> or an issue, send off an email and I get a response within 24 hours. The support that we received has been phenomenal. 
And that wasn't true for all of my colleagues from some of the other institutions. In fact, they were quite envious of those of us from Dartmouth. And the fact that Dartmouth was perceived as a nimble and responsive international partner was also noted many times by both the Clinton Foundation and the Rwandan leadership. So now, on to impact. Of course, we faced many challenges in our work. That's because at the heart of it, the Human Resources for Health program is about culture change. It's about changing from a culture of service to a culture that matches service with education. And culture change is hard, and it takes time. We participated in some concrete uh, measures early on, things like uh, helping reorganize the ward teams and setting up the resident um, conference schedule to ensure that there was protected resident time for learning. Um, we tried to create a safe and nurturing environment. My first week in Rwanda, I attended morning report, and I watched the um, resident being grilled. You could see the sweat broke out across her brow, and her voice started to tremble a little bit when she spoke. But six months later, I saw Morning Report had been transformed to this nurturing and supportive learning space. So how did that happen? It wasn't because we pulled aside our Rwandan colleagues and said, this is how you should do Morning Report, this is how we do it in the US, this is a better way. It was all because we modeled a different behavior, and it caught on. And we learned that many times, actions speak louder than words. Of course, there were many systems issues at all of our sites. And the hard thing there was to resist the temptation to just go and do, or just jump in and fix the problem. We had to learn how to take on a supportive role. I kept on saying we're there as faculty extenders, not faculty replacements. And every solution that we um, sought had to be collaborative. I kept saying the, the solutions that we arrive at have to be Rwandan-driven and Rwandan-owned if we want them to be sustainable. And of course, it was a challenge for us to pace ourselves. I kept on having to remind myself this, there's a reason why this is a seven-year program. And then in terms of the impact that I felt I brought back with um, myself, this program and my participation in it, in it certainly reinforced and refined for me what an equitable partnership should look like. And I think that some, there's some lessons there that we can apply to some of our other partnerships. I know we've laid the groundwork for future collaborations with, that'll include residents, fellows, and students. And I know that I always come back from these experiences much more patient and grateful than before I left. This is Rwanda's greatest asset, um, Rwanda's human capital. Picture on the left of me with some of the um, senior residents, and on the right with my Rwandan counterpart, my Rwandan twin, Dr. Jean-Luc, who is the director of the biggest HIV clinic in Kigali. Bright young rising star, and he and I continue to collaborate on some, some projects. This project has, uh, program has received a fair amount of publicity. Some of you may have seen the um, write-up about it as a special report in last month's New England Journal. And there's always a chance for a good photo opportunity whenever the Clintons come to visit. <laughs> so I'm going to con conclude my remarks with these wise words. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I think we're in this for the distance. So thank you. I will conclude my remarks there. And then I'm going to ask um, our next speaker to come up. I put the names of my colleagues here are going to be speaking next. Um, you see their specialty, the dates that they were in Rwanda, um, and their primary placements in Rwanda. And we're going to have Bruce Friedman get us started. Thank you, Lisa, and good morning, everyone. It's, it's um, due to the expertise of people like Lisa and Laura and Elizabeth that there's been a decrease in the burden of infectious disease, deaths, and HIV patients are living longer, that cardiovascular disease has played an increasing role in the, dis the, dis the dis disease burden in, in Rwanda. Um, the World Health Organization estimates that um, non-communicable communicable diseases account for 29% of all deaths, and that by 2020, um, cardiovascular disease will be a major cause for morbidity and mortality in most developing countries, including Rwanda. They account for 30 to 40% of hospitalizations in Rwanda, and they have a major effect on the um, quality
quality of, of, of life, especially in the poor and underprivileged. And these are two examples of patients that we saw when we were in Rwanda. The first is an 18-year-old girl who presented with cachexia. Um, I don't know how well it projects. Um, I think you can see on the x-ray there's marked calcification of her entire pericardium, and she has an end-stage constrictive pericarditis. The other patient here is a 32-year-old um, who presented with irreversible limb ischemia, and you can see she has multiple emboli to both lower extremities. She had um, a cardiomyopathy with an LV thrombus. She was six months postpartum, and she was also um, HIV positive. And she required multiple surgeries um, to get her through this. And, and she hopefully was discharged, but she'd be going back to her village with, with a six-month-old and, and the rest of the children. Um, what are, the, what are the facilities for cardiology in Rwanda? Um, let me tell you, there are no troponins, which I guess is good in a way. There's no cath lab in the country or for hundreds of miles. Um, there's no stents. There's no worry about daughter balloon time. But what they have, um, the New York Times published this article in 2010, Third Poor Nation with a Health Plan. And Lisa mentioned this. They have national health insurance. 92% of the population is covered. It costs $2 a year. Um, and what does that provide? Well, for a population of 10.5 million at that point, they had three cardiologists, one neurosurgeon, um, essentially most in Kigali. Um, and as I noted in the article, in, in heart attacks, strokes, and cancer were often death sentences in 2010. Um, last year when I was there, um, there was they had one state-of-the-art cardiac echo that could do Doppler, Doppler, all, all the complements of Doppler that you need really to evaluate, to do a proper cardiac evaluation. Um, there was one trained sonographer in the entire country. And unfortunately, well, fortunately for, for the surgeons, but unfortunately for cardiac, she was mainly doing um, abdominal procedures. Um, now compare that with Dartmouth. We have 10 to 15 sonographers, 10 to 15 machines. Um, and this one, this one echo machine was in, in a private cardiologist's office at King Plaza Hospital, so it wasn't always available. What they would do would they use, would use other echo machines, obstetric echo machines, abdominal echo machines, to try to get views of the heart in various district hospitals and so on. Uh, in regard to heart surgery, um, in 2006, a pediatric cardiologist went to Belgium and was trained, and that led to some philanthropic surgery being done in Sudan. In, in South Africa, Israel, fee for service, ten to ten to fifteen thousand dollars in India was out of reach for almost the entire population of Rwanda. Starting in 2006, they were visiting heart surgery teams. The first team was from Australia, Operation Open Heart, and currently there are four teams. They each visit for one week. They bring all their own equipment. They bring the perfusion pumps. They screen the patients before they get there. They have echocardiographers in their country that review the echoes. They have discussions. They bring the number of valves that they're going to use. Um, they bring the perfusion media. They bring their own echo machines. They bring the, the monitoring equipment. They bring the, the stuffed animals. They bring everything. And, and, um, and that's great. It is a problem, though, when you're working there and you have someone who's dying and you know can only be saved with surgery, and there's nothing you can do. So the question is, what about the rest of the patients? You know, that they take care of 40 or 100 patients who need surgery. What about the rest of the patients? And this is from the frontispiece of a Partners in Health Guide on Non-Communicable Diseases. Jeanette died from rheumatic heart disease at the age of 14. She fought her disease with bravery and determination. This guide is dedicated to her memory. Um, as Lisa mentioned, the major goal of the HRH program is to provide for the remainder of the patients 365 days a year for years to come. And they do this by using Rwanda's human capital. I was the first cardiology specialist through the HRH in Rwanda. I was there a year ago in November and December. My primary placement was in King Faisal Hospital. King Faisal Hospital is sort of the private hospital. It has um, a little more equipment, a little fancier than the other hospitals. The cost for spending the night there is $20 to $30. Um, and, and so it's where the surgery's done and so on. Um, I also spent a day a week at, at Central Teaching Hospital. That's where Lisa was in, in Kigali. And my final week was with Laura and her team in Butari at the Central Teaching 
hospital. And my goal was to help develop a cardiology program. And this involved teaching and mentoring of the providers, helping to work on a cardiology curriculum for the National University. And um, I also had a, a twin, a cardiology twin, someone who was very interested in pursuing a career in cardiology. And then there were the extra, extracurricular activities. Word travels fast if, when, when someone hears that there's a cardiologist and they, you know, it's, you're asked to be pulled in all sorts of directions. And um, this picture, uh, first of all, the upper picture is a picture of King Faisal Hospital, which, as I said, is one of the more modern hospitals. The picture on the right is in Butari, when some of the pediatric um, resident, residents and faculty got a hold of me with, to come with, I brought a handheld echo machine, very tiny little echo machine, and I'm taking an echo on this child who had recurrent, uh, recurrent episodes of uh, congestive heart failure, um, very difficult to treat. They knew he had rheumatic heart disease, but they didn't really know much more about that. There's no archiving of studies. So he had studies somewhere, and he may come with a piece of paper that he's had rheumatic heart disease, but you know, it's hard to treat someone when that's all you know. Looking at the echo, you see the size of his heart, whether it's a primary stenosis. Some of this you can get from a physical, physical exam, but this certainly complements things. Obstetrics, um, I was asked to give talks in, in, in each of the hospitals. Every week that I was there, there were women dying in, in childbirth with rheumatic heart disease and microstenosis and so on. Um, so, Impact while there, as, as Lisa mentioned, we strive to create a positive environment for learning and service. And in King, at King Faisal, where I was lead the general medicine team on, on rounds, we used a team approach and we stressed the shared work, uh, cooperation, important to avoid diffusion of responsibility. And, and um, they were that all had a very positive result, as Lisa mentioned. Um, this, this video clip is from a patient in Butari that was admitted, again, with rheumatic heart disease um, that I took with the handheld machine. And um, you can see the mitral valve is thickened. It's doming of the mitral valve. And this is mitral regurgitation. Um, so part of the teaching was going around using this machine, using this handheld, handheld echo. The um, residents loved this because, as I, as I mentioned, there was no archiving machine, so they had never really seen an echo on their patients. So this was an amazing teaching tool. They would understand the anatomy better. They would understand the physiology better, the leaky valve, the, that leak, the mitral regurgitation. Oh, that's the murmur I'm hearing. They would. Um, understand the picking of the, of the mitral leaflets, the left atrial enlargement. And they just loved this, and it was very helpful for them, um, and as well as it was helped the patients. Um, this next picture in the center, which uh, is a clip of a video that was sent to me via iPhone, and Laura may recognize this, but was a patient who came in in respiratory distress, essentially in terminus. And, um, you know, I, I think there was a suspicion that there was a cardiomyopathy, but it wasn't known. But if you look here, um, there's a large thrombus sitting in, in the left ventricle. And um, yeah. so not only was this helpful in terms of treating the patient, there was a pathological diagnosis, essentially. Um, there, weren't, there aren't a lot of pathologists in the world. But, um, I also was asked to give daily didactic sessions to help develop the curriculum. And, um, and, you know, the, so I stress cardiac evaluation and guideline-directed uh, therapy. The problem with direct, guideline-directed therapy, every time you gave a talk, the residents would want copies on your, on, of your PowerPoint because they didn't have a lot of printed material. Um, and you would, you know, but the problem with the guideline-directed therapy is most of the guidelines involve troponins, stress echoes, um, <coughs> fancy echo MRI, cardiac catheterization, things that are not available there. So, you know, what I had to do was emphasize what is available and cost-effective interventions that they can do. They have a drug formulary that includes carvedilol, that includes ACE inhibitors, and that's what we stress. Lifestyle interventions, things that they can do, avoiding salt, et cetera, et cetera, the, the basic sort of things that we could do. And they really appreciated this. It was 
one of the one of the few times in my in my career where I was asked by some of the residents who missed my talk if I could come in the next morning at five or six and repeat it for the ones who had missed it. Well, that's really quite satisfying. It was exhausting, but it was satisfying. <laughs> um, this is a lifestyle changing um, thing to do. Um, you know, you return with an increased appreciation for the basics. Hand sanitizer, Purell, as opposed to this is the apparatus at in the Central Hospital in Butari to wash your hands. Um, notice the, the there is a, a bottle with soap, there is water, there's nothing to dry your hands. So you really appreciate not only clean hands, but dry hands. Um, simple and advanced technology. Um, and the, the, not only having the technology, but the steady and reliable supplies for that technology. So you can have an EKG machine and you go to teach EKGs, but you need paper and you need ink. And so um, you know, that, those are things that are being improved and, and, and as well as echocardiography. Um, they, they are getting purchasing machines. The ancillary support, as I mentioned, no, no um, technologists or sonographers. Um, there's no experts to review. I'm not a, an echocardiographer. There's no experts to review these things. But you appreciate having that. And we had the neurosurgeon at King Faisal Hospital, and I was the cardiologist there, but there was no neurologist. So it was, you know, it was little things like that. Come back with increased patients. When I came back, EDH didn't even bother me. Um, <laughs> continued education. Um, this is Jean, Jean Pierre, on the bottom there, Jean Pierre Subramana, who um, some of you may have seen. He spent two months here um, in October and November, and he insisted on coming here, um, and he spent it as an observership in the section of cardiology, and he spent a lot of time trying to hone his skills in echocardiography. And um, this is him giving a talk in the cardiology conference room on November 27th. Shortly after he returned to Rwanda, I got a note from him, an excited note. Um, you know, I just had a patient who came in with a CBA. We had the new Sonosite Echo that, that they're distributing there. I went and grabbed the machine, and I put the Echo on the patient's chest. And what did I find? I found mitral stenosis, and the, the valve, mitral valve barrier by pressure half time is 0.5 centimeters squared. He must have been the star. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and this is what we're going to do, and so on and so forth. So it's satisfying things like that. It's also come back with an increased sensitivity about healthcare systems, and, uh, the, the limitations of health resources. The, the, the health resources are not unlimited, and we're hearing more and more of that in our own country. We're more aware of population health care and the tensions of population health care versus individual health care, um, something that Dr. Socks has written a lot about. And then you also come back and you want to spread the word. Um, you want to get other people involved and excited, patients asked about it, other staff. You want to try to encourage people to support this program. And this is my summary slide. I'll let you peruse this in while the next speaker comes up. So I have a little microphone. Are you able to hear me in the back? Yes. Okay. So um, thanks very much, Bruce and um, Lisa. Uh, I was placed out in Butari. I had that uh, option to go. And I'm from a rural area, and I thought this would be a little bit more my speed. I also had the opportunity to get to visit before I went for the year. So um, I was pretty excited about this. This is Butari. Um, Butari is a very small, technically a city. Um, had about 70,000 people in the 2012 census, which was taken two weeks after we were there. Um, so this is the main road, the only paved road in Butari. And it's a view of um, the mosque right in the middle of town. Uh, my first day of work, biking to work, the sunrise overlooking the, the fish farms below. And this is a view from the market, which is actually not very far from the hospital, although Butari is pretty small, so nothing's very far from the hospital. Um, and all of these buildings here are all owned by um, Sebahungu. This is a view from a bar, which is one of the residents' favorite um, social spots, which is called the Sebahungu Bar. He's also a landlord for a lot of 
uh, the HIH folks. This is Sashi Bay, which is um, the University Teaching Hospital in Butari. This is the outside of the uh, of the hospital here, and this is the new building, which um, not surprisingly went to the administration, um, but also had running water and a nice flush toilet. Usually, this is the view from my office, which is one of my favorites. Um, I love monkeys, so I have. It turned out when I was um, going to prepare this talk, I have over 2,000 pictures of monkeys, but didn't have a picture of the front of the hospital. I had an but this is the, a view of the, the School of Medicine Oops. Uh, from my office. And the postgraduates, of course, definitely made this experience. This is a small part of um, the postgraduates or the residents who were um, and Butari the second half of my year with some visiting sub-specialists. And um, I also, this is right outside of the HIV clinic and where we had morning report. The view is absolutely gorgeous and could be a little bit distracting at times. Um, so this is just kind of continuing the tour of inside of the hospital. This is the, the hospital's a bunch of outdoor corridors that are all connected um, to the buildings. And this is outside of the ICU, another monkey picture. And inside of the ICU, so this is the Isere Sano Rishia. This was a, a picture. It was, I transferred someone who had tetanus who needed to be intubated, who we intubated in the ICU. And as I was writing my procedure note with the resident, they looked down and I just, this was the view that I caught. And, um, not unlike Lisa's first picture, I thought sometimes um, pictures, um, life can kind of mimic art. So this was um, somebody's cell phone. There um, are two ampules of bicarb and the New Testament. It's on the desk in the ICU. I thought that was pretty representative. Um, so moving down, there's um, internal medicine. Um, this is our, our ward. This is the only picture I had. It was clearly the rainy season. Um, and our Emergency room, which lends new credence to the word room. It is really literally one room, two chairs, and this is the examining table. Uh, this is Sylvan, one of our postgraduates, who was very excited to pose for this picture. Uh, we had a nice donation from the Stanford Guide, and he really wanted to be on their website um, using their books, so that was him. This is my twin Florence, clearly fraternal twins. Um, she was a hematologist and was actually finishing her PhD the first three or four months that I was there. So we didn't work quite as closely together as other people did with their twins. Um, and so I ended up working more with the residents and the students, um, which I really did love. So in terms of affecting change at Sashi Bay, um, for me, one of the biggest things was assessing the need. We were sort of the reconnaissance mission the first year. I was trying to figure out what we were supposed to do, why we were there, how they could best use us, um, and in what cultural context that would be most appropriate. Um, they very much were interested in uh, having a lot of didactic sessions and PowerPoints, as Bruce talked about. They like tangible things. They don't have a lot of printed materials, and they, they um, enjoyed having something to reference. We, however, thought that um, bedside teaching, it became pretty apparent very quickly that they needed more clinical skills and more translation from the book to the bedside. So we tried to focus um, as much as we could on that. And as Lisa talked about, um, the, the culture of teaching there was not of um, positive reinforcement. It was punitive. It was dictated. It was not creating a differential, but rather um, coming up with one diagnosis and um, sticking with that diagnosis um, until proven otherwise. So we modeled, um, largely as, as we did to teach, um, this uh, safe learning environment where the students felt that they could uh, were able to talk to us. They were able to ask questions. It really um, improved critical reasoning and coming up with a differential. And I have a little example of that in a second. And then mentoring with residents and with our faculty twins. Um, so in terms of didactic learning that we did, this is Tim Walker. He's a, an Australian gastroenterologist who preceded me by a few months um, with a separate mission program, uh, faith-based organization. And these are our postgraduates and students um, who we worked a lot with team-based learning. So a lot more with problem solving. It still gave them some literature to read. We had a quiz, which was tangible. They liked that. They actually asked for more of them and more reading. Um, but then it also gave them time to um, think about things, come up with a differential diagnosis, and analyze more than just come to one, one diagnosis. Um, we worked also with the folks in Kigali at devising and uh, standardizing the curriculum. Um, we helped to also redesign Morning Report, um, which was a, a favorite amongst the residents and the students. After we, we did it, it used to be just presentation of the cases that came in overnight, which if there were 14 patients admitted, was pretty long and not particularly high yield in terms of learning. Um, so we changed it to present 
to focus on quality over quantity. So we would present one or two cases that the, the residents or students had that they either um, had questions about the differential or the diagnosis or about their management. Um, and then to broaden a differential. Um, and quite often, as they were still developing their physical exam skills, we would take that back to the bedside during morning report, do a physical exam with the patient, and then revise our differential based on what we found. Um, Journal Club, which was a, a really um, enjoyed, uh, we did this bi-monthly. When I sat down my first day with uh, the Vice Dean of Education, who was also the head of internal medicine, and I asked, how, how can we be most helpful to you? What is it that you want from us? And he said, we used to have Journal Club. It was a great thing. It's fallen by the wayside. There's nobody here to lead it. Can you help us restart that? And then um, we'll take it over. So we had two weeks later our first Journal Club um, where we worked very hard to find articles that were clinically relevant. Um, so Tim and I did the first few Journal Clubs. Then we passed this along. So there was a postgraduate who was paired with a faculty mentor, uh, one of the Rwandese faculty, and then with one of the HRH folks so that they were mentored through the process. And we had them pick an article based on a patient that they had seen in the last few weeks or somewhat recently to answer a clinical question. And um, it's continuing without us there, which is great. Um, and then we had um, morbidity and mortality. We had their, the very first one ever at Seishu Bay. We actually had two before I left. Um, so the, the culture is uh, very much it's a hierarchical society. It's not focused on questioning the, the people who are higher up on the hierarchy. Um, so morbidity and mortality was a pretty sensitive cultural uh, thing for us to do because it involves questioning ourselves and question, having students question um, other people's judgment or questioning um, clinical acumen um, and decisions. And it actually ended up going over really well when we were able to say, this is what I did wrong, or this is what I would change in the future. Um, this is how we could do things differently. And for them to see that we were also taking into account how we could change things with ourselves and that we do this all the time, um, it made them feel much more comfortable. And they came to some really interesting conclusions on their own, one of them being that they needed to have more people working on the weekends, which was something I had tried to be like, we need more people on the weekends all year. I could say it as much as I wanted, but uh, they needed to come up with that on their own. And so they've changed that now so that instead of one resident, they're having two, and they're having more attendings on the weekends available. Um, in terms of bedside teaching, uh, we worked a lot with physical exam skills, um, ward rounds. They previously the attendings rounded for an hour um, twice a week, so we worked on modeling by doing daily rounds and not one hour on 18 patients. Um, and then following up after the didactic session to come back and see our patients and to follow up the lab test that we had ordered. Uh, we worked a lot on communication with nurses and with patients, which was no easy since the language is pretty difficult. Um, and the degree of English that's spoken in Mutari was much less, I think, than Kigali. Um, and we worked a lot on, on compassion, compassion with patients. And patients are, can be very stoic, um, but working on things like palliative care and treating pain, um, and that just because we need to use IV morphine doesn't make somebody, um, isn't going to turn them into a drug addict, which was uh, a concept that was hard to, to work through. So this was, um, I guess, an impact for me, um, I guess, both ways. And this made me, this was one of the most rewarding things. It was an email that I got a few weeks after I got back from the internist who took over for me um, and um, who told me that he had a patient who was dying in cardiogenic shock. Uh, and Fidel, who's one of the postgraduates there, it was the first year, um, had, in his assessment and plan, had decided that he should be using morphine for um, air hunger and for pain and comfort. And it was something that previously, in fact, our first m, &M that was what I focused on. That was our, our take-home point. Um, and here he brought this up on his own. And he and Andy was shocked because it was one of the things I told Andy we had been working on. Um, and Fidel said that he would not have been um, previously comfortable even making that recommendation. Uh, but since we had been there, that was um, he felt OK saying that. And he thought that was the right thing to do. Um, so the patient did end up passing away comfortably, unlike our previous m, &M. Um, so other lessons that I learned, this um, definitely reaffirmed my commitment to working uh, to, uh, for health equity. Understanding and managing expectations, that was a difficult one for me in the beginning. And I, I knew that going into it, but um, it was much better once I readjusted what my expectations were when I understood where they were at. So they had great book learning, they were had great academics, um, and 
I expected that they would have fantastic physical exam skills because they don't have a lot of labs and they don't have a lot of testing. But without clinical um, mentors and clinical teachers there, they a lot of them didn't have didn't know how to use a stethoscope, didn't know how to put it into their ears. A lot of them didn't have stethoscopes. Um, so readjusting my expectations and then teaching that, and that made a huge difference. Um, and creative resource utilization and problem solving when we were out of labs. Someone we strongly suspected had hypokalemia. We used an EKG to look for U-waves, which incidentally he did have. Um, and um, also managing resources in general, so resource stewardship. Um, other lessons that I learned, uh, the impact of a safe educational environment for learners is something that um, I think here I've taken for granted quite a bit, but there it taught me quite a bit. Um, and then with Jean-Pierre, uh, continuing relationships for, for students and residents here and there. Um, SFDS was a diagnosis that I came up with my first week. It's seen from the door splenomegaly, so this is what my residents taught me. Um, I was certain that this was a mass. This was a patient that I met my first week. He had been there for quite some time, and he, like many other people, had tropical hypersplenism, um, very common there. And I, you can see the mass, and I was sure he had some kind of malignancy. And they said, oh, no, 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 Dr. Chevy, that's a spleen. And I said, that's not a spleen. You can't see the spleen. It's a mass. It's got to be cancer. No, Dr. Chevy, it's a spleen. So we went and got the ultrasound, and that is definitely a spleen. Um, <laughs> and learning a lot of patients since time moves a little bit differently there. Uh, so, Murdoch Sechani, thank you very much. be a bit of a cop-out just to say, like they said. <laughs> but um, in fact, uh, so many of the lessons were similar for me. Um, I know that we're out of time, and I know that um, this almost out of time. Um, the speakers are uh, interested in what you have to ask and what questions you have. Um, I thought that I would give you my impressions in, in a more personal way, perhaps sort of the, the David Letterman top 10 kind of experience, and I know we don't have time for it all, but I, I um, wanted to make sure that we addressed, at least in brief, uh, the family component of things. Um, I said, you know you're in Rwanda when? And, and my experience is that your family is unplugged but fully recharged and charged. I um, brought my three young children to Butari with me, and that's my husband as well. I brought him too. Um, <laughs> and um, put them into the local uh, international French school. And um, I, I think that this will be a lifetime source of, of pride and, and growth for them, that they were um, truly ambassadors to the American culture in, in a way that would be couldn't have achieved anywhere else, right? Um, they, they rose to challenges, and I think that this was a, a formative event for, for our family. I could go on and on. Uh, uh, as said, we, we don't have time for it, but I, I want to let you there who are considering the, the larger social event of, of, of uh, experience in Rwanda, that, that it, it can be beyond um, the, the academics that you'll experience. You know you're in Rwanda, too, when there is delicious and valuable low-hanging fruit. So um, I used my skills in, in infectious disease and tropical medicine um, uh, and outbreak investigation and, and hospital epi, um, which I do here, but but there were some, some great experiences that, that I, I take with me. One was um, sort of fresh off the boat learning that <clears throat> there was an impression of an outbreak. Um, those in the uh, neonatal intensive care were perceiving that they had increased deaths from um, sepsis in, in their um, most, in their youngest children. And, and so this echoed my last week's grand rounds around outbreak investigation. So I thought I would use this example. Um, at a very basic epi, we um, graphed the, the cases, you know, confirmed the outbreak. We, we did some basic epi and, you know, Clearly, there's something going on um, in in the hospital that and and the organism turned out to be Klebsiella pneumoniae, which was not an interesting, not an obvious thing when laboratory um, responsiveness and, and and quality is not ideal. <clears throat> Remember, we we need to <clears throat> understand whether there's an outbreak based on what the baseline 
um, is and what's going on in, in each of the departments. Is this a, um, geographically localized? And, and this just demonstrates, of course, that this is the neonatal intensive care unit that is um, bearing the brunt of this increase in um, sepsis from, from Klebsiella. And where did this come from? Well, it was being acquired within the unit. So they weren't bringing it in with them. Um, um, but rather, they, they were acquiring disease within. So this gave us a strategy for control. And, and all these very basic lessons um, were very satisfying to me, that this was an expertise that they were hungry for, that, that was easily translated. Um, and, and some of that other, some, another aspect of the low-hanging fruit was, was um, developing the first antibiogram for the hospital in terms of how do you treat these sepsis events. Um, so we, we spent a lot of time in the microbiology lab and, and tried to, to convey the importance and the principle of an antibiogram for, for the institution. And um, maybe I'll just draw your attention to the fact that the first-line therapy for um, presumed sepsis in the neonatal intensive care unit was ceftriaxone. And what a shocker, 88% of the Klebsiella isolates are ceftriaxone resistant. And in fact, the resistance rates within the hospital were very high. So um, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. Um, I think that you also know you're in Rwanda when you encounter, yes, occasional resistance to this medical education culture change. I'm, I'm, I, I've heard the wonderful lessons and agree fully with, with what my colleagues have said. But, but I think that there's a challenge that hasn't been maybe fully put on the table, which is that there is a great and complex intersection. There's a challenge to your own clinical skills, your cross-cultural abilities, your communication and language, especially in Butari capacities. Um, and there is an expectation for you as, as an um, ambassador in this program to quickly adapt to a very new professional environment, but at the same time while serving as an ambassador to change it. So um, we could give many examples as, as beyond what you've heard so far, but I think that this, this was a lasting lesson for me um, that, that was a very stretching experience. So in, maybe in conclusion, you know you're in Rwanda. When you're in familiar roles, but you find yourself with new energy because of the time that you have and especially the focus that I had. So for me, this was a tremendous alt-control-delete. Um, like many of you, I wear many hats. And, and to be able to focus like this in, in a setting that, that really came back to basics um, in terms of the skills and, and the um, imperatives in, in your daily professional and personal life, I think that this has given me a great new energy to, to come back to um, my first love, which is um, global health and uh, epidemiology and disease control. So those are the few comments I have, and I hope that we would have time for uh, your questions and, and a larger panel discussion. So thanks for letting me bring up the rear. And <laughs> just, uh... well, maybe I'll come back in year eight or nine, actually, for this program. Um, I, I do think that um, they're well poised to make tremendous progress, but it's, it's just impossible to know if they'll reach all the goals to be fully um, sustainable in seven years. But they're trying, and there's, there's great momentum, I think, that they're building on. I think um, a lot of the impediments are around systems issues. Several of us actually said when we were there, you know what, instead of bringing another internist or another surgeon or another specialist, how about bringing twice as many health managers? And we actually felt in many ways that it was the, the people working on the systems issues that were really going to allow us to, to sort of build that foundation to then implement the changes. I, another um, 
analogy that we referred to is that we needed sort of to be able to clear the tracks for the train to be able to go through. And it felt like the health managers were the ones who were working on the issues that really allowed the train to go through. There's a number of competent, motivated um, healthcare workers in both um, in faculty and in training. Those that aren't are probably going to fall away to the wayside when they find out they have to work on weekends. Um, I do think that um, that there's the, there's really good you know starting material there for this to, to be a sustained change. The other thing that I, was the question always for me was, and I, I sounded like a broken record many times in, in Rwanda saying this, that I wanted to make sure that they were sure that they had the finances to hire these newly trained um, residents. If they could create those personnel um, lines, there was a chance. So that would be my response. Anybody want to add anything? It was really, really uh, surprising and interesting to me to hear that um, postgraduates didn't have strong clinical skills because postgrads I've worked from other Af trained in other African countries have incredibly strong, like Kenya and South Africa, have incredibly strong clinical skills. So, what's going on with medical education in Rwanda? Where did, why are these people not learning what they really <laughs> need in in to work in a resource poor environment, which is strong clinical skills? One system issue that we identified collectively was was the experience of going through medical school and then immediately going into service in a very unsupervised locale for a year. So this is a national service routine that, that I suspect um, serves to, I don't know, facilitate the, the, the hunkering down on maybe not quite right uh, notions of clinical medicine. It taught folks how to posture and, and to present themselves as as aware uh, or confident and in charge, but but sometimes you know really they they it was a false confidence that was hard to break through, and I think that that was a systems issue that I would worry about in, in going forward. Um, but I wonder what else people are saying. I would comment that due to previous events in Rwanda, um, the physicians there were either very old or very young, and the whole physicians were I think also, at least at Sashi Bay, um, the faculty there, um, in order to make a sustainable living, needed to, felt they needed to have outside work. So rounding twice a week was part of the system, but part and parcel because they spent their afternoons in a private clinic so they could make money. Um, so they weren't around for, for education for the residents. And really, it was that bedside clinical education that they, that they truly need to, to go forward. You guys spoke really nicely about some of the cultural aspects of this. I think for for us, thinking about going to Rwanda, this country that had this horrible genocide, can you just say, did, do you experience when you go to work and live there the genocide, or is it sort of not so experienced? Very good question. Um, I would say both yes and no. One thing um, that actually I took out of my presentation because I didn't have enough time to say everything I wanted to say was that my um, realization that Although you can find data on how many Hutus and Tutsis are in the country, Rwandans never use those terms to describe themselves or refer to others. And I thought that was just, you know, as a, sort of, sort of be considered a social faux pas if you use those. But it actually can land you in violation of the crime of genocide ideology if you use those terms. So there is, from the top down, a uh, very strong hand um, pushing for integration. We're all Rwandans. Um, you know, we're not even going to use those those terms. But having said that, when you talk to people, um, most people will um, are uh, willing to tell you, uh, sometimes eager to tell you their story about their experience with the genocide. Again, many of the people that we worked with were people who were part of the diaspora who left. At, you know, the genocide was not just in 1994. Um, there were. Um, many periods in which people were being persecuted. And so many of them left at various stages and were actually raised outside of Rwanda and returning now to their country. And people were obviously 
uh, many times willing to tell you about their, their stories. So it's there, it's, under, it's an undercurrent is how I would describe it, um, but it's not, it's something that there's great acknowledgement of. There's actually a whole week, I think the first week of April, where um, it's Remembrance Week. It's a very hard week. I wasn't there for it. Um, uh, Laura, you were. And so there's, there's not a wanting, to, there's not a desire to sort of push it under the rug. Um, so yes and no. You feel it and, and sometimes you don't. Oh, did you want to just, comment? Just one, again, I'll, I'll represent the personal side. And, and one of the aspects of education for my children I hadn't expected was so much around the genocide. So I didn't expect to be having to explain what happened in a genocide to a nine-year-old. You know, I really thought it was going to be about other things. But, but it, it's enough of an undercurrent. And the kids being in school locally with locals, they would come home. So what's what's with this genocide? It was, it was really hard. Um, just a quick, I gather a lot of the medical education is sort of transmitted person to person. You haven't met, said anything about textbooks. You mentioned Journal Club briefly. Um, nothing about databases. Is there anything going on within, it can't be for Rwanda alone, but within Sub-Saharan Africa, where there is some uh, attempt to share information that really is country or locally specific, not Western-oriented type of information? That's yours, Laura. I can speak to that a little bit. So um, through UpToDate, uh, there's something called Global Health Delivery Online. So um, although electricity is um, often not present, cell phones and email, is there's pretty good access to that when your battery was charged. So they all have some kind of computer access. And um, through um, GHD Online, there's communities for Sub-Saharan Africa for different um, countries. And it's, it's uh, an ongoing kind of email and, and blog back and forth. Um, and then they all, we did apply and we received an up-to-date grant. So they had up-to-date as well um, that has a global health section that's uh, more culturally appropriate. We did find a good textbook of tropical medicine for sub-Saharan Africa that we used for our team-based learning also. That answers your question. Well, I think we'll stick around if we can for other questions, but thank you very much.